You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, this morning, I want to begin by telling you about a man that died 21 years ago on April the 28th, 1997, at the age of 72. His name was Miles McGrew, and he was my grandfather. My grandfather was a man of very, very few words. You may know some people like that. Very private. And there was so much about him that I never knew. You can see his chair where he always sat didn't interact with us much, and in so many ways, he was, he was a mystery to us growing up. Well, a few months after his death, my mother was going through some things of his, and she found a letter that he had written, handwritten note, and it was really about his life. Finding this letter was really enlightening. There were things I learned about him that I never knew. I, I knew he grew up in Van Buren, Arkansas, I knew that he believed in hard work and knew the value of a dollar. But as I read this letter, I never knew that he had to drop out of school a few times because his family didn't have enough money to survive on. I did not know that he had to be moved around from family member to family member because there was, uh, they just couldn't afford a place and couldn't afford to feed everyone, so he was sent to live with others. I read this part that... He believed that children started school too early, and all the children said, Amen. He said, You need to wait till they're hungry to learn, and then you let them start. And if that was the case, my son would probably never go to school. People in his generation, he hated taxes, but I wished I had known this. He loved baseball. I never knew that. I mean, that was my passion growing up. My mother said I could not sit very long at all. I hated to watch TV unless the Atlanta Braves were playing. But I loved baseball. I never knew that about him. He was drafted in the army of World War II. And he said, he wrote, he said, I wouldn't have made it without my mail and my cigs. But then he wrote something I've never forgotten. He said, never let anyone dictate to you what is right and wrong. Stand up for what you know is right. And I've never forgotten that. You know, I've never forgotten that letter. In fact, I still have it today. I reread it this week. In some ways, these are like the last words that I ever heard from him. I heard very few words, but in some ways, that, those were like the last words that I ever heard from him. He wrote down what he wanted us to know, what he wanted us to remember about Miles McGrew. It included some personal opinions about life, but it also included some lessons that I think he wanted us to know. But here's what I've often thought about is that, why didn't he tell us? Why didn't he take the time to let us in? Why was he so private and distant? And I may never know those things about him. Sadly, you read through that letter and there's never a mention of faith, There's never a mention of Jesus or a God, so I've often wondered about him, but I am thankful for that letter. Well, today we are going to close up our Life of David series on all three campuses. For the last 16 weeks, we've been looking at this man, David, and we're going to go to a section today, and guess what it's titled? David's 
last words. So in some ways, what we're going to see today is a lot like my grandfather's letter. There's going to be some things that David wants those around him to know and to remember about him. It's going to include some things that he wants people to know and includes a word of warning. Or you might say a word of encouragement. So this morning we're going to go to 2 Samuel 23. Only seven verses. So on your Bibles or in your device if you want to turn there. And here's what's going to happen. David's going to give us ten things that he wants us to know. And so I've called it David's top ten list. He's going to write to his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren about things he wants them to know and things that he wants them to remember. And these ten statements actually fit into four categories. The first one's going to be about himself. It's going to be some very personal things that he wants his audience to know about who David is. He's going to give us two things about what God has taught him. It's even then going to tell us what God is like. And then he will close up with a word of encouragement or a word of warning. So it begins in 2 Samuel 23, and beginning in verse 1, this is how it reads. Now these are the last words of David. So here it is, David has spoken these words, he's written them down. It's what he wants people to know, he wants them to remember. And the first five are about him. So the first one's going to be what David wants others to know about him. In verse 1, he says, An oracle of David, so this is who wrote it, the son of Jesse. So the first thing David wants us to know is who his father was. He wants us to know he was the son of a shepherd. He was the runt of the family. The one nobody remembered or even thought of. So he wants us to know he came from very humble beginnings. And then it says, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. David wants us to know, his grandchildren, children to know that, hey, I am someone that was raised up, given a place of extreme power and leadership. David was taken to a place that he never would have reached on his own. David was positioned, placed, where he would be able to have influence. The third thing he wants us to know about him, it says, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Anointed, it's the word Mesha, which means Messiah. David wants us to know that he was anointed by God as king, that he was, he was called, he was set apart for this. It was not something that David set out to do. He wants us to know, this wasn't something I set out to achieve. This wasn't my you know, vision board, that my dream board that I put all these things on it and I go and seek these out. David says, I was anointed to do this. That he was called. That the God of Jacob set him apart for this. Then in verse 1, he ends by saying, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Yours might say Israel's beloved singer. So he was a poet, he was a musician. David is saying, this is what I want you to know about me, kids. I was a worshiper. But David is saying, listen, I want to be remembered as a worshiper of God over a politician. He wants them to know this about him, that I hope I'm remembered as a worshiper. Well, the fifth thing about himself is in verse 2. 
He says, the Spirit of the Lord, He speaks by me or, or through me. That my, His words are on my tongue. So David says that God speaks by me. And it, it, his words, they are the words that I speak. Meaning, David wants people to know that he trusted in God's revelation to him. Then when he spoke, he hoped that they saw that he spoke God's word. That he listened to God and then he spoke. Some ways that he's the mouthpiece of God. For these first five things of David, he wants us to know, he wants you to remember. But notice, David does not describe himself in terms of human achievement. But it's instead, it's in his relationship to God. David doesn't want to take credit for anything. I'm a son of Jesse, had nothing to do with that. He says, I was raised up, anointed, God spoke through me. And David is living counterculturally. Kings in this time, they wanted to be seen as deities. They wanted to be viewed as God. But the point is that David, he doesn't want to be remembered for those things. He doesn't want to take credit for those things in his life. And he was living against the culture with that. But it didn't take long for me to think, wow, we live in such a time of self-promotion. We want to take credit for the things that happen. We want to be noticed. And I was listening to a conversation this week, and somebody asked the guy, he said, hey, what are you doing? He said, man, I'm just building my brand. And we live in this, this world that we don't even think about how we are just self-promoting. We want people to notice, to give us credit. But David says, not me. But think of the things David could have said. David could have said, hey, gather his family together. My time's running out, but you know what? He could have said, I'm a giant killer. I'm the king. Don't forget that united Israel. I am the one. I'm undefeated. Every battle I've ever been in, I have won. Hey, I want people to know I'm a better king than Saul ever thought about being. He could have said, hey, remember, I'm the one that brought the ark into Jerusalem, so make sure no one forgets that. But David, he wanted people to see that everything he was able to achieve or to do was because of the God he served, not him. So David begins by, this is who I am, but he doesn't take credit for anything. Well, then he's going to show us numbers six and seven of his top ten list. And it's two things that God's taught him. The first one is in verse three. He says, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So this is what God's taught me. When one rules justly over men or rightly over men, ruling in the fear of God. So David says, I want you to know that when, if you're going to lead, if you're going to rule, to do it rightly or justly, it's done out of a fear or a reverence for the Lord. David says, listen, leadership isn't done rightly or justly through having charisma. It's not by reading all the top leadership books and then living that out. He says true leadership happens out of a reverence for the Lord that calls you and anoints you. That God leads you before you could effectively lead other people. And you can go and try, 
that I never forget reading. Somebody once said, the best way that you can lead others is by fully giving yourself to the Lord. That that is where leadership comes from. And David doesn't want to be seen as a self-made leader. David wants to be known and remembered that true leadership comes out of one's relationship with his Lord. That a true leader is one that upholds what God upholds. I one day came across a Latin phrase that I've often used, and if you get an email from me, you'll see it. It's Deo Deus. And every time I see a, an email, I send an email, I'm reminded, because it stands for Christ as our leader. And I'm face to face to that every day. Okay, he is the one that is leading. He is the one that we are following. And anything we accomplish comes through him. And so the seventh thing on David's top ten list, he says six, leadership. It begins out of your relationship with the Lord. But then he gives us a great word picture in verse 4, of what leadership looks like, what true leadership looks like. He says he dawns on them like a morning light. So a true effective leader is like the first light in the morning. Like a sun shining forth on the cloudless morning. Like the sun that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David says true leadership, do you want to know how you can see it, what it looks like? He says true leadership creates life. Meaning leadership that comes from a love and a reverence for the Lord is like the first light of the morning when the birds begin to sing and the flowers begin to open. He said that's what true leadership's like. True leadership is, comes from a reverence from the Lord. It's like the warm sun that breaks through the coldness of clouds. The true leadership out of a fear of God is like a refreshing rain that causes the trees and the plants and the flowers to grow. We live in such a time where it seems like so many leaders are seen as corrupt, immoral, oppressive, power-hungry. We live in a time when leaders are using people for their own personal gain and they're trying to take advantage of those around them. But David says, don't forget that true leadership leaves a trail of life behind it, not a wake of death. But this is not just important for high-profile positions of leadership in countries as king. When I think about this lesson that true leadership leaves a trail of life, not death, it's important for this church. It's important for the business that you are in, even in our own homes, that we need to be asking ourselves, am I leading in a way that is leaving a wake of death or a path of life behind it? I'll tell you, this week we were at a retreat with many of our elders and deacons and were sharing with us about the things going on at each campus. And the thing that stuck out about this campus to me is that how we've got a group of people that are pursuing other people. Somebody's sick, and, you know, even before I can try to get there, people have already been there to see them. Man, things happen in homes, and crisis happen, and, man, people are seeking out people to help them, to encourage them, to pray with them. People in our congregation that are sick, that others are going and caring for them, and they're pursuing other people. I'm thinking, that is how you leave a trail of life. 
not death. So we see that David said, this is what true leadership is. It comes out of your relationship with the Lord, out of a love, out of a reverence for Him, and then it looks like life behind it. Well, then David gives us numbers 8 and 9 on his list, and it's kind of a what is God like to him. He wants to leave for people that know him. He wants you to know, this is how I see the Lord. In verse 5, he says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. I mean, how often have we heard that term looking through the life of David? He says this, he says, family, God is a covenant God. He says, God chose my family to establish his kingdom, not because my family is great and perfect and special. He says it's because God is a covenant-making God. You know, I know this is a word we often don't use, or when we hear it, we think of like an agreement or a contract. But a contract is a way of two people kind of working out an arrangement. You know, you might need a car, and so you go and you make a contract with a bank. If you give me this money, I'll pay it back over this certain amount of time. Or you have a skill that someone else could use, and so you enter in this contract about, hey, I'll fix this, or I'll do that, and, you know, you pay me this in return. But a covenant, a covenant is initiated, and it's guaranteed by the Lord. Covenants are include us, but they're not dependent upon us. You don't have to make payments to make sure it gets fulfilled. You don't have to do something to make sure that it comes to the end. That a covenant is by God's sovereignty, by His power, it's expressed in a way that it includes us, but it's not dependent upon us. And David says, I am who I am because of God is faithful to His promises. And then in verse 9, or the ninth thing in that next verse that David wants his readers to know, it's about God's covenant. He said, God is a covenant-making God. Of all the things David could have chosen to write down, to write down, he says, this is what I want you to know. That God is a covenant God. But then he gives us some description. He says, in ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help. In my desire. And David simply says, God is a covenant keeping, a covenant making God, and you can trust Him at all times. Meaning, God's uh, His covenant, His promises, He says, they're ordered, they're secure, and He says, they're for your good. Meaning, God is working everything that He needs to make this promise. Come true. He is perfectly arranging every single detail to guarantee that it happens. Meaning that circumstances, they're not going to dictate what happens. God will work all the circumstances to his perfect plan. But think about David's life. David's life seems like it's anything but ordered and secure. I mean, David, as soon as he can get some peace... What happens? War breaks out. As soon as he can catch his breath, his own son rises up against him and runs him out of Jerusalem. 
David is there and Judah and Israel are completely divided. They can't even agree on whether to bring the king back. He's run out of Jerusalem, climbing the Mount of Olives, weeping and mourning. I mean, his life is anything but ordered and secured. But David says, above it all, above all of the circumstances that I might be in, God is always faithful. That God isn't reacting to the things happening in David's life. He says, no, he is orchestrating all things for my good. But what's David trusting in? What is the promise that God made him that David is able to keep going in all the chaos and all of the struggle? The promise, back in chapter 16 where he says, someone from your family will sit on the throne forever. And they will rule rightly and perfectly. And so David is counting on that that's going to happen. That no matter what happens in my life, what chaos or obscure as it might seem, David says that will happen. And we know that one day a son did come from David. That he rules perfectly and righteously. And we know him from the same town. We know him as the name of Jesus. That's what David is counting on. He's counting on God to keep his promise. And David says you can always trust God's promises no matter your circumstances. And he wants those closest to him to know that. So David's coming to the end of his life. He's experienced many ups and downs. He's gone from being completely unknown as that shepherd, the run of the family, to utterly famous. We have seen him show maturity that is so far beyond his years. And we've seen him act as if he knew nothing. We've seen him be fearless when everyone else wanted to run and hide. Patience and restraint in some unbelievable circumstances. When everyone else is telling him to do something else, he waits on the Lord. He's ruling in Jerusalem. But then he weeps climbing up the hill barefoot. So David, as he reflects over all of this, he sits down and he takes that pen and he writes to his children and his grandchildren for the things he wants them to know. And the son of Jesse, a simple shepherd, was raised up as a warrior, anointed as a king. I'm a worshiper over a politician. Don't forget, family, true leadership begins with your relationship with the Lord, the God of Jacob. That Yahweh is loving, he's covenant-making. He's always going to keep his promises. His plans, they're ordered. They're guaranteed. He's always working to protect you, even when it doesn't feel like it. And he's always working for your good. But there's one more thing that David wants to leave them with. There's one final thing, the tenth thing on David's list that he wants them to know, and it comes in the form of actually a warning. In verse 6 and 7, you see this warning. And this is how it reads. But worthless or godless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed by fire. 
So he gathers them together and he says, listen, there is a future to be avoided. In the light of God's word to David, in his old age, I think he begins to see clearly that there are two destinies for people. The first one, we would call heaven and the other we would call hell. That he says, listen, there are two futures, loved ones. He says, I know not everyone wants God's kingdom to come. Some, some want no part of it. Some people want no part of a righteous ruler's reign in their life because that's where they want to be. They want to rule. They want to be in charge. David calls them godless people. David's saying, family, loved ones, there is no heaven be. There is only heaven and there is only hell. And if anyone stands against God and his kingdom, they will be consumed by the judgment to come. They're like thorns that will be cut and burned. And a thousand years after David, there's another man that comes with a very similar warning, the Apostle John. And he wrote about this reality in Revelation 21. In verse 8 he says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexual, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, Liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. A few verses later, he goes on to say, But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And David wants all of those around him to know there's only two options at the end of this life. An eternity in the presence of a loving, covenant-keeping, always-protecting, gracious God. Or an eternity completely separated from Him. He says there's no in-between. At the end of this life, as believers, we know that if you are not in Christ, if you are not trusting in what He has done in your place, then you will endure the wrath of your sin and the punishment for it. Either Christ paid that for you on the cross, or you will spend an eternity doing that. You're either in Christ and He endures it, or you will spend an eternity enduring that for yourself. And as David reflects back over his life, thinking of his children, his grandchildren, he wants them to know, I'm a simple shepherd. I was raised up as a warrior. I was anointed king. It wasn't something I sought out to do. God just moved in my life. But I want you to know that I was a worshiper over a politician. Might not always have acted like it, but I hope that's what you remember. I want you to know that true leadership, it comes from your relationship with the Lord. That Yahweh, our God of Jacob, He's loving, He's covenant-making, He will always Keep his word that you can always, no matter what is happening, you can trust his promises. They're planned, they're ordered, they're guaranteed, and he will always work to protect you. But then he said, don't forget, there is a future to be avoided. And this is what David wanted those around him to remember. It's what he wanted people to know about him. 
But it's not unique to David. The great thing about this, you see these kind of oracles, these last famous words all throughout the Scripture. You can read Moses's in Deuteronomy 32 and 33, and he wants people to know the greatness of God. Joshua in chapter 24, you know this. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And That was his cry. That's what he wanted people to know. I think you find Paul's in 2 Timothy 4. Where he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith by God's grace. Even Jesus. I believe you find his in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. This is what he wants them to know about him. So as we conclude our Life of David series, I would want to ask you, what do you want those around you to know? What do you want them to know and remember about you, about your God? So I want to leave us with a challenge. In your bulletins, and there's several more on the back table, there's a little piece of paper that looks like this. It's got the four same categories. Who are you? What's God taught you? Who is God like or what is your God like? And then a word of encouragement and warning. And so this is my encouragement, that you would take this, think about it, and write it down. And just think how meaningful it would be for you to take this and to share this with your spouse or your children or your family, maybe even those that are far from the Lord. I know it can be often hard to talk about these things, but to write it down and just simply share it with them. Write it down and give it to them to read or write it down, send it in an email. So take and write it. Write it down and then share it. Share it with those that you love. Share it with your neighbors, your friends, your family. You know, there was so much I did not know about my grandfather that I wished he'd have shared with me. Don't keep these things a secret. Share it while you still can have those conversations. And then pray that God would use that to inspire someone else to create a conversation that maybe you've been wanting to have for a long time or that your children get to see this about you. And then live it. You know, there's so much in that letter that my grandfather wrote that was a total surprise to me. Live out these truths so when someone read about it, it's not a surprise. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.